Your life has meaning. Hey everybody, welcome to Mike Check. I am Mike Westendorf. It is great to have you guys here today. Um, what a blessing um, to have a good friend on this show and on this podcast today in Luke Thompson. Mike Check, by the way, uh, it's really a podcast about Christianity and culture, applying a biblical worldview to our everyday lives. And uh, this is now episode number seven. And so I have my first guest that I am excited to have here. Luke and I go back to some campus ministry days that uh, we did together. And um, he is one of the deep thinkers and deep applied thinkers that I've really, really grown from uh, getting to know and seeing his work. He has a new book that's out. Actually, it's been out for a little bit, a little while. He's working on another one already, but it's called Your Life Has Meaning. And uh, I highly, highly recommend this book. It's accessible, it makes you think, and it really does help lay the framework for um, kind of interpreting the the things that are happening in our world. And especially, we're recording this in 2020 with the world just kind of turned upside down, literally the whole world upside down. And all the craziness of a political year and some of the real deep needs uh, in our country. Um, Boy, is this a meaningful book right now. So we're going to be talking about some of the content in this over these next couple of podcasts. So I hope that you guys can stick around. So at this point, I want to welcome in my guest, uh, Mr. Pastor, Professor. You'll have to tell me all the titles, but uh, welcome, Luke Thompson. It is great to have you here. Hey, Mike, it is absolutely fantastic to get to spend some time with you. What what are all of your titles? I, I, I was trying to tell another friend about how the order of this came in, and my understanding was you were you were teaching philosophy first at WLC, but then went back for pastor. Just catch us up. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the craziness that you are in. <laughs> yeah, right now it's just pastor, so I'm, I'm a pastor. Uh, but originally... I did a lot of school, a lot of kind of university trying to find my way, try to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And so for a long time, I was studying philosophy. I had a absolutely fantastic philosophy professor at Wisconsin Lutheran College, a guy named Greg Schultz. I think he teaches now at Concordia Mequon. And uh, he just kind of blew my mind with a lot of the stuff that we were studying and going through. And a lot of the stuff in the book uh, has its roots from those classes. After spending a few years with him, I wanted to continue and do graduate work in philosophy. So I started doing that kind of with an eye towards teaching. But somewhere along the line, uh, my wife and I, we found this congregation that we just had an absolute blast with doing things on the weekends. And we just kind of fell in love with ministry. And Hmm. so um, we decided to kind of change gears and we haven't looked back since. And so while I was going through seminary, And uh, a lot of that process, that's where I especially started taking a lot of my philosophy stuff and applying it, um, apologetics type things Mm -hmm. to campus ministry settings. And so that's where you and I met doing the gatherings in Milwaukee. And so a lot of the work from my campus ministry stuff, plus all the, the last seven years of me being a pastor here and the experience there. They've just kind of, I put together a lot of these thoughts together into the book that we're talking about here, but I'm just a pastor right now. So (laughs) uh, yeah, did a bunch of teaching 
at, you know, colleges, uh, university settings, but now uh, I'm just a happy pastor at a congregation in Ottawa, Ontario. We work a lot with University of Ottawa students and Carleton University students here in town. And mm-hmm. so that's a big part of my ministry as well. Um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at right now. I love I love to hear you say I'm a happy pastor. I mean, that, that can be a tough job and it, it has its cycles in it, no doubt. But to hear, hear a happy pastor, that is a really, really good thing. <laughs> Um, let's jump into it. Um, there's a, a number of questions. I, I had an opportunity to read, read through the entire book. I decided I wasn't going to mark it all up the first time. I was just going to try to my best to not, you know, make notes and everything. I was just going to read it and let it impact me. And then I'll read it again and I'll start making notes. But, um, there, there were a lot of things that came out of it, um, that were very helpful for me to strengthen the biblical worldview, the framework that, that we try to understand the events and the facts and the information of our day. And this, this first question, really, um, you, you come right out at it talking about the idea of a meta-narrative and a cosmic purpose. And back in when we were doing The Point of Grace, we had just started kicking up this idea of the gatherings, and, and you were kind of the featured speaker for the first several that we had. And we dove right into Game of Thrones and, and Lord of the Rings because at that point it was still pretty pretty fresh on people's minds. Now it's like you can get the DVD, all three of them for five dollars. <laughs> you know? But uh, but this whole idea of the meta narrative and I'd like you to spend a little bit of time just help us understand what that is and why it's so important. Yeah, I think that's a huge question and. Maybe the first thing to note, especially about the book, is that it is really a meditation on big chunks of the book of Ecclesiastes. So this book of the Bible that hardly any of us ever read very regularly. It's a very strange book. It begins with this very crazy statement where the teacher, uh, we identify him as Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. He begins with the words, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And so the book is really just trying to figure out what in the world does Solomon mean? How can you have an inspired writer of the Bible say that everything is meaningless? (laughs) And for me, just to kind of figure out this this book of the Bible and exactly how it works and how it functions, the concept of a meta-narrative has been just extremely useful for that. And so maybe think about the meta-narrative like this. There was a famous philosopher named Alistair McIntyre who wrote a book called After Virtue and a bunch of other famous books in the philosophy community. And he once famously wrote that the only way I know what I should do with my life is if I know what story I'm a part of. So the only way that I know what I should do is if I know what story I'm a part of. And so maybe think of it like this. If you picked up, let's say a really big book of some sort, like Les Mis or something like that, a nice big giant novel and you just picked one random chapter in the middle of that book and Mm. you read that chapter, would you be able to make any sense out of what's going on in that chapter? What do you say? I'm a context guy. I like context. And so without context, I I feel very naked. Yeah. So you, you read that chapter and the reality is you've got no idea what's going on. So you don't have any idea of whether or not the actions that those characters are doing in that chapter, whether they're good, whether they're bad, whether they contribute towards a good ending. You, you probably don't know who the villains are and who the heroes are or any of these types of things. 
if you're just reading that single chapter, because there's no context whatsoever, you have no idea what's going on in that chapter. You need the whole book in order to understand what's going on in any individual chapter. Mm -hmm. Now imagine your life is one chapter in a big giant book. Mm. If the only thing you knew about your life was your life and nothing else, and you didn't have any idea of what's going on in the rest of the story, how can you understand what to do with your life? And that's McIntyre's point. If I don't know what larger story I'm a part of, I've got no idea whether or not what I'm doing with my life is good or bad. I've got no way of making value judgments. I've got no way of really understanding what, what's going on around me and what's going on with my life. I need this larger picture of some sort to contextualize my life. And so a meta narrative, sometimes it's called a mega narrative, but the idea is it's a larger narrative that all other narratives fit within, including all of our individual narratives. So if your life is one narrative, there's a larger meta-narrative than that our lives are found within. And that larger meta-narrative then gives meaning and purpose to what we're doing with our lives. It gives us an idea of what's going on in our life. But if you take that away, if you've got no idea what the meta-narrative is mm -hmm. to this world, then it's like your life is like that single chapter. You don't know what to do with yourself. You've got no idea what's going on. Wow. That, that's, you know, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about, you know, how many times uh, you feel lost, you know, so as you're describing it, I'm remembering a couple of times when um, like I was new into the music thing and I really didn't have any idea of what I was doing. And I, I entered into a community where everybody else knew what was going on. Like they, they had an opinion about what they were supposed to be doing and had opinions of gear and they had opinions of recording and what ministry was all about. And I, I felt so out of place and so uncomfortable and just, I, I, I physically felt, I won't say ill, ill, but I would say emotionally not well. Um, and I'm, and I'm even thinking now, you know, for how many, and, and this, for anybody who watches this, you know, if you've felt lost, you know, uh, death of a loved one, those kinds of things, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in many cases, it can become so focused on me and my emotional state that all of a sudden I forget the story I'm in. And when we don't have that, I don't, like you said, I, when I don't know what's happening, it just, it just collapses in on itself. And so that, that can happen to us in, in a day, you know, and even if we come from a, like, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on, and then, bam, it's like a Mack truck hits you, or you find yourself in a place where you're, you have no idea. I think that everybody can relate to what you just said on some personal level. Yeah, well, and you think about those words that, that Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. So he says, everything is meaningless, and then he says it under the sun. So mm -hmm. under the sun, everything is meaningless. So if... All I have access to is just kind of the stuff that's happening around me, just what my senses are kind of immediately taking in, just kind of life as it is. And I'm, so I'm just kind of looking at things here and my eyes aren't up and I don't see that overarching meta narrative, which um, for Solomon is the biblical meta narrative, right? So if I don't have that overarching meta narrative, to make sense of things, then, then life really is just meaningless. I don't know how to judge what's going on in my life. So my loved one dies. Um, I, I don't know what to do with that until for Christians, I know that that loved one was a Christian, that they're with Jesus, 
that Jesus conquered death, that this is part of the meta narrative. And so because of that, even though I feel loss, I know, even though I feel grief, I know that there's a good ending and that this isn't the end and that God is working this out for good. But if you take all of that out and all you're left with is just death, uh, the death of a loved one, and there's nothing to contextualize that. And I don't know what to do with that. It's meaningless at the end of the day. I have to be able to know how death, what the role of death is in the larger scheme of things in this universe. If you have a, a materialistic worldview, so we can either describe this as a meta narrative of materialism or Darwinism and things like that, or just say that it's just the lack of a meta narrative. But mm -hmm. if you have no story, if this universe just is, if we're just a random conglomeration of events that have taken place over time, determined by the laws of physics, and there's nothing more to it than that, then all of a sudden that death is very different. Then I see it as the absolute extinction of life. I'm never going to see this person again. So the larger narrative that we understand our lives in is necessary to be able to really know what's going on. And Solomon's point was, when my eyes are down here <laughs> underneath the sun, and I'm just seeing life as it is, and I'm not considering a transcendent God that's infusing things with meaning, then my life is completely meaningless. And so Solomon's point, I think, is he's making us draw our eyes down so that we eventually have to lift our eyes up in order to turn to God for a, for a rescue from this meaningless life that we have. As you were writing this, uh, this out and, you know, putting it down, what, what was something that struck you, you know, personally, you know, and again, comparing over the sun and under the sun, what was something that struck you for yourself personally? And then what jumped out to you that you felt was going to be helpful for the people that you do life with? So especially when we're dealing with university students, university setting, but this goes for, for anyone now that's interacting with our culture, there's such a prevalent understanding of this, of these postmodern notions that, that I'm stuck in my subjective point of view, that everything's relative, that truth is relative, beauty is relative, all these types of things, that there's no way to actually access the truth. And even, even if we don't explicitly think that, mm -hmm. we've inherited this from our culture. Right. And so, so this is a very dangerous thing for Christians. And it, it is reflected, this kind of subtle postmodern idea in, in art, in what we read, in so many different things. And so it just naturally bleeds itself out in, in, in our interactions with students and things like that. A good example of this might be, um, so Stephen Sondheim has a play, Into the Woods. And have you ever seen this play or no? No, but I've heard bits and pieces of it. Yeah. so it's heard a, people it's talk a, about it. It's a really interesting play. The first half of it is basically fairy tale characters like Red Riding Hood and the wolf and, you know, the baker with, you know, and the beans and Jack and the beanstalk and these types of things. Yeah. But there's all these separate different stories, these well-known fairy tale stories, but then they're woven together into one major story by a narrator. And so there's an actual narrator that then is telling you the audience how these different stories fit together. And so all of these disparate stories, they fit together in one nice, pretty story. And at the end of the first act, there's a nice happy ending to it. Mm -hmm. Then right after that, between acts one and two, the narrator uh, is killed, is, is uh, killed by a giant. And there's no narrator in the second half. So in other words, there's no 
meta narrative. Yeah. Right? There's no overarching story. And all of a sudden, all these characters that we thought we knew, they become far more complex. Uh, the princes end up being womanizing, you know, uh, uh, pompous jerks, right? Um, the characters that we thought were evil were now having trouble determining exactly what they were. And then the songs change as well. All of a sudden you've got songs where the characters are singing, you decide what's good, you decide what's right, you know, and witches can be good and, and things like that. And all of a sudden there's all this ambiguity that takes place. And the end of the second act then just kind of ends in a wasteland of death and just lots of problems and no one knowing what they're doing. They're just lost in the woods. Right. And I don't know if Sondheim was, was thinking of this analogously with postmodernism, but it is such a close fit and it perfectly describes the condition that, that our students find themselves being taught in university settings. Now Mm -hmm. that, we live in a moral wasteland. We live in the woods where we have no direction. Each person is on their own expected to make determinations on what's right and wrong and what, what's, what's the meaning of life and these types of things, but with no frame of reference whatsoever. That's all been taken away from them. Uh, they've been told that we're in a universe where there is no narrator. There is no overarching story. There is no overarching purpose to what's going on with our lives. That's, uh, that is fascinating. The idea that there is no narrator under the sun, there is no narrator. You know, this has, this has some pretty, um, heady implications for our, our culture today. You know, I, I know things are, I don't live in Canada, so I don't know what the news cycle is like there in Milwaukee, as I'm sure you've, you probably know, it's been hard times, you know, it's been a very trying summer, um, on, on a number of different levels. And one of the things that I think a lot of people want to do something about, for example, is we do believe that, um, people with, uh, dark skin, black people matter. Um, I, I, their life matters and we're thinking about it in a way that we never have before. And yet you've also got the challenge of, the organization, and now you've got the politics of things and all of this stuff. And what we really want to do, we want to do something that is going to make life better for people who are impoverished or who have not had this kind of advantages that I have had. We want to be able to see people um, heal and grow. But I'm curious to see how you respond to this question. We have people putting out different solutions about what would make something better? What is the mindset of trying to solve a problem under the sun? And what is the mindset of trying to solve the same problem over the sun or above the sun? Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 I understand what you mean. How does this lack of a narrator affect the way that we look at our everyday life, our cultures, our neighborhoods, our families, and we say, I know something's broken, I need to fix it, how how does one fix it without an narrator or without a meta narrative yeah so the deeper question is is how can we justify these beliefs that we have so for example if if we're going to argue that uh an individual has value right and a value that is equal to every other human being what are the actual grounds for believing in that and whether or not you have a meta narrative that gives grounds for that is deeply important. Otherwise, you just have nothing to stand on, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, imagine um, 
uh, you're a mother and you've got an infant, right? I've, I've had this conversation with mothers before when, you know, to talk about meta narrative. So you've got this baby. Um, mom, do you believe that your child has value? Absolutely. 100%. This child has infinite value, right? Do you right. believe that this child has value because you value it? Um, imagine that you weren't around, that no one else was around uh, that valued this baby, um, that there was not another single person in the universe that valued this baby. Would that baby still be valuable? And the mother wants to say, yes, absolutely. It doesn't matter if there's anyone to value that child. That child still has value. Well, what do you base that on? You need some type of foundation because if your explanation of the universe is again, maybe an evolutionary one, materialistic uh, uh, explanation of this universe where nothing but matter that's been produced by natural processes over time, then ultimately there's no such thing as value. You can't talk about the idea of value because value as a concept only exists with someone valuing something, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so this, this, if you want to say that this child has infinite value of some way, shape, or form, then there needs to be an infinite valuer. And so you need some type of infinite valuer. You need a meta-narrative that's going to infuse this individual with infinite value and meaning. And so what does the Christian meta-narrative do? It says not only do we have a shared creator, that there is a God that created each and every individual in this universe that before they were even created, they existed in his mind. Right. Um, but when we fell away from sin, the creator desired that no one be lost. And so he sent himself as a savior into this world for them. And so now each individual has not only the value of being someone that's created by the creator of all things, but we now have each individual, the value, the infinite value of the creator himself, because he's died for us and clothed us with his righteousness and with his holiness. And so that means when we look at any individual, we are now looking at someone that has the value of God himself because God has given that person that value, right? And so now we've got grounds for being able to say that this person um, has value and so ought to be treated differently, right? Um, but you need that meta narrative. You need some type of overarching explanation in order to ground that. If you take that away, then all of a sudden there's no reasoning for having this, 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 this discussion in the first place, right? It needs to be grounded in something and Christianity grounds it like no other religion or worldview or philosophy can. Uh, and maybe uh, speak to that. We're going we're gonna to take a break here just because we, we tried to, to say, well, we're going to try to keep podcasts to about 25 minutes, but this is going to be so good. We're going to do another, uh, another episode, maybe two. I don't know. We'll see how far we go. But um, before we finish this thought, uh, um, I love the, the picture of the, the large view Christian meta narrative. And I agree that there's nothing like it on the earth. There's nothing that can satisfy. Um, what is from your philosophical background, your pastoral background, just your your observations, what is the narrative under the sun that gives value to that child? What what are the attempts, and and what do we see in our postmodern reality? Um, other ways that people would say, well, but no, I value this, and here's my narrative. So. The only way philosophically that you can talk about something having value is if it's being valued, right? And so we can make a distinction between what we call short-term value and, uh, and transcendent value, 
of some sort. So for example, one of the examples that I give in the book is I found this newspaper clipping a few years ago. I don't even know where I found it at this point, but there was a little Starship Enterprise, little metal, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Enterprise, right? That was right. purchased by a guy for something like $35,000. And so, and then the newspaper clipping said that he had that $35,000, he said, from, you know, 30 years of not dating. And so you've got the Starship. Of course. That this man paid $35,000 for, little piece of metal. How much is that Starship Enterprise really worth? $35,000. That's how much it is worth. Why? because someone is willing to pay $35,000 for it. If that person gets hit by a bus, how much is that starship now worth? Not $35,000, not no. if there's no one else on earth that's willing to pay that amount of money, right? right? If there's no one else that values it, the value of that starship enterprise now becomes zero. There is no value to it unless there's someone that's valuing it. And so typically, we can talk about things having value in the short-term sense that people value things. And because of that, they have value. And we can talk about this culturally as well. So cultures have values, things that they place value in, but it's relative to their culture. If the culture doesn't value this thing, then it's not getting any value from the culture. And so this is a very real sense of value, right? Yeah. This is not like a, a, an illusion. This, Things really are value if people value them. That's, that's what we mean when we use that word. But it's only going to be short-term in the sense that that value could end. Right. right? And it will end when people stop valuing it. Given an evolutionary uh, deep earth framework, a million years from now, you know, if the human race goes extinct, that means everything that we valued will no longer have any value whatsoever from, from uh, the smallest things to the, to the greatest things that, that we've accomplished as a human race a million years from now, it will have literally no value whatsoever because there's no one around to value it. Um, and that's where if you want to talk about something having transcendent value, having cosmic value, then you need some type of transcendent valuer. You need someone that is able to say, I value this thing regardless of whether or not anyone else does. Right. And so what was one of the most powerful things that we see in the figure of Jesus when he was doing his ministry is that he would find individuals that no one else valued and he taught them that they did have value. Why? Because God valued them. Think of Zacchaeus, right? Yeah. Different figures like that. Um, Jesus valued people. And because of that, they have eternal value. And he expressed that through dying for them on the cross. Right. Yeah. Um, and through that clothed them in his val is invaluable blood. Right. Um, so all of a sudden in that Christian narrative, you've got a way of talking about value that you can't otherwise lots of philosophies ways, try to come up with ways of talking about value and their value. They're, they're valid to a certain <laughs> point, but only in this short term sense to talk about things really having transcendent value. You need to somehow be able to step outside of just humans creating this and generating it. Wow. And you're not going to find that in an atheistic Darwinistic world, right? Wow. So, mm -hmm. That is uh that is huge. Um, I think we're going to, we're going to take a pause here because in our next, on our next uh, episode, I think we want to dive into a little deeper about that idea of the cosmic meaning. I think you had talked to, that's how you wrote about it, but this, 
pursuit of value, you know, that why are we so, why do we want my candidate to win? And why do I want you to listen to my music? And why do I need you to value my business and spend your money here? Because I need you to validate and value me or what I'm doing and what I am has no meaning. That that has some, I mean, it's just in the world that you can just see that all over the world. And to see what Christ does, what, what the Christian has, you know, it's not just a couple of made-up stories. My goodness, it's the story that will be the foundation for everything that gives you value. Whew! Luke, man, thank you. Um, we're going to take a break right now, and uh, we're going to come back to uh, this again in our next episode. But I hope you see why I was geeked out and excited to have uh, Luke with us. Man, uh, these are these are big ideas, but like I said, they are accessible. And the book that he wrote is called Your Life Has Meaning, Discovering Your Role in an Epic Story. And uh, man, I would love to see in your comments you know, below, uh, share it with people, but what, what did you learn? What impacts you? What makes you go, wow, could I stop and rewind that? I need to hear that again. Uh, if you enjoyed this so far, we've got I got a couple more important questions I want to ask Luke to uh, to talk about from this book as well. So I hope that you guys will join us again. Again, my name is Mike Westendorf. This is Mike Check video podcast about uh, Christianity and culture, uh, basically taking a look at the uh, world from a biblical worldview and applying it to our everyday life. So I'm happy to have you guys with us. Join us again, and we will see you soon.